Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia. Once again, we have an awesome guest on the show and I'm really excited because it's our first guest from CSIRO. We have a postdoctoral research fellow, Dr. Erin Hahn. Welcome to the show, Dr. Erin. Hi, Amelia. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. First question, hopefully an easy one. What is your job? Uh, I am officially an enabler of science. Uh, what I do is I develop technologies for other researchers uh, so that they can use in their research to gather data from historical specimens. So it's a way of kind of traveling back in time to look at how animal species uh, were coping with the environment of their day or maybe not coping so well. So I'm creating a toolkit of resources that researchers can deploy in order to include historical data in their data sets to answer whatever kind of questions their hearts desire. That is so cool. And I love that title, an enabler of science. That's just... <laughs> okay. Can you give us an example maybe of one of these tools that you've developed? Is that allowed? Yeah, sure. So... I work in a museum collection, and our collection focuses on animal species for the most part. So I think mammals, reptiles, amphibians. And in our collection, we have specimens preserved in a variety of different ways. So you can think of almost like a plushy doll um, that kids might have in their bedroom. We preserve them that way. Or we have skeletal remains and skulls. Uh, and we also have what you would think of from like your biology class in high school, like frogs and jars. And those are the specimens that I work with because researchers have come up with lots of different ways to look at the DNA in specimens uh, like bones and hide and skins. But specimens in jars have always been thought of as too hard or practically impossible because these specimens are preserved with a chemical called uh, formaldehyde. And what formaldehyde does is it locks everything in place really, really tight. And this is really a wonderful thing if you wanna preserve the anatomy of a specimen, but up until now, it's been the absolute uh, bane of the existence of uh, molecular geneticists. If you try to get DNA out of these specimens, it just doesn't work and it comes out degraded into um, many, many, many little tiny pieces. So what I've been doing for my postdoctoral work is thinking about it in a very different way in that formaldehyde doesn't degrade specimens. It actually preserves them so well that you have to go in with effectively a molecular jackhammer to get the DNA out. Um, and using the technologies that I'm developing, we can now look at specimens that we would have otherwise completely ignored. And this opens up an entire wing of uh, not just my collection at the Australian National Wildlife Collection, but also collections of formal and preserved specimens all around the world. That's awesome. And because especially as a lay person, I would have looked at those specimens and you sort of go, oh, they're a bit manky looking, but they also look kind of useful because they still look like the animal. So I would have assumed you could just like use them like an animal. 
Yeah, exactly. And like you said, some of them do look a bit manky. So our the collection items that I work with, they're not the cute and fuzzy ones. <laughs> uh, and the collection hall can be a bit stinky at times, but you're right. They do have all of the elements of the animal um, as it was uh, when it was out in the wild. And the really special thing about these specimens is not only do they look sort of the same as they did, but their internal organs are also preserved. So skulls obviously don't have the tissue attached to them. Um, and hides are usually preserved having removed the interior organs and so that they, they don't degrade while they're in the collection. Um, but formalin preserved specimens are dunked right in formalin whole. And so you have all of the tissues there preserved in the state that they were when the animal died. And each tissue, think organs, hearts, liver, lungs, and brain, they're all responding to the environment in different ways. And these signatures are preserved in only the formalin specimens and not the hides. And so we can get a much more holistic picture of how animals were responding to the environment. Does this include their stomach contents? Possibly. That's actually an area of research that um, I'm really keen to get into because you're right, there would be stomach contents preserved in the specimen when they died. And so you can get an idea of what they ate. And this has been done previously, just kind of like picking through the contents of uh, the specimen and identifying each uh, component individually. But I'm hoping to use molecular methods to kind of get at this so that we can get a more complete picture of what the animals are eating. Well, there's so much potential in this because the the skin and bones and all that sort of thing, surely that will have trace elements of what the animals were eating and what was around. And that, that will then like give you a little hint to what else is, was in the environment at the time? Yeah, absolutely. In a lot of the specimens in our collection, these would be from populations that have gone extinct. And so we'd have no other way really to get such a fine detailed picture of you know what they were eating and how they were responding to the environment. And this is especially important, you know, with climate change, um, kind of driving biodiversity loss with the recent bushfires in Australia. A lot of species that um, Australia once had may have been lost, and perhaps those records um, are really only present in, in our collections, and so that would be the only way to get at these data. And we need that, that data to have a baseline and understand how things are changing because if we don't if we can't see what there was we don't know what we've lost yeah absolutely we're in sort of an all hands on deck situation right now in the face of climate change and pandemics and droughts and now floods just a few weeks ago um and i feel like we have to be using all of the resources that are at hand. And if that means using our natural collections to look back in time at the mistakes that we may have made and how we can better prepare for uh, the next version of bushfires or invasive species and floods and better prepare ourselves for how to manage them. About how old are these animals? Or the, sorry, the specimens. Well, there are a range of ages. We've got specimens dating back a bit over 100 years. 
our collection isn't as old as some of them, maybe in Europe, but we do have a really good chunk, at least covering the last 60 or 70 years, which would correspond with some of the most dramatic environmental change. But sadly, it means I can't ask you about megafauna because you probably don't have a diprotodon in formaldehyde somewhere. (laughs) Not in formaldehyde. We do have a thylacine, but not in formaldehyde. And the area of research that focuses on on the megafauna would be in ancient DNA. Mine is not quite so ancient, more recent, recently preserved specimens. Sort of recent historic kind of, yep. So the thylacine is not in formaldehyde? No, it's not. It's a skull. Oh, you have a skull. They have sequenced the genome of the thylacine, but that was from an ethanol-preserved pouchyong, I believe. That like makes you want to think about cloning and things, but let's just like rein it back. <laughs> That's the first question that I get from primary school kids when I go to talk about my research. Just hand when I tell them that I can sequence the DNA of extinct species, their hands all shoot up. What about dinosaurs? Can we bring back the dinosaurs? I don't think. Oh no, you're thinking way too ancient. That's not my not my bag. <laughs> Do you have a favorite specimen? That is a tricky one. Because I have all sorts of ones that I like for scientific reasons. But let's see. Oh, that's so hard. It's like asking someone what your favorite child is. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, let me think. Or a podcaster, what's your favorite episode? These are cruel questions. So one of my favorite specimens in the collection are these blue spotted tree monitors. And the reason I like them so much is because they're this brilliant blue color and the color just radiates throughout the rest of the collection, which is mostly just a bunch of jars of yellow and brown liquid. And these guys just sing through the rest of the collection and remind me that in all of these jars, there are representative species of the really vast taxonomical diversity that's here in Australia. I just love them. Have you ever seen one in the flesh, so to speak? Not these ones. No, I have seen a few tree monitors and they've gotten me so excited because they were one of the species that I was really hoping to see when I came to Australia. And the first time I saw one, Uh, I think I was screeching like a little kid and I pulled the car over and my kids were like, what, what, what happened? I said, oh, I think I saw a guana in a tree. (laughs) (laughs) And we got out and kind of like walked around the tree and he was going up and uh, circling the tree. But I have seen one in the wild and so I can, I can take that one off my bucket list. They're, They're pretty epic creatures. Yeah. It's nothing like waking up at your campsite in the morning to have a tree monitor just staring down from the canopy. (laughs) And they can stare, like proper stare. (laughs) Yeah, they can. Are you able to share any examples of how some of the research that you've helped enable, what that's helped us understand about the recent past? Sure. The research that I'm doing here at CSIRO is a bit new, and we haven't uh, had a chance to engage with population managers just yet. But from my PhD work, I have a really good example. I did my PhD at the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona, in the States. 
And I was working with a population of captive bred Sonoran pronghorn. So pronghorn are an undulate, and a lot of people think of them as antelope. So they're the little guys bouncing along the plains. And in the southern region of their, in the southern extent of their range uh, in Arizona and Mexico, their populations have shrunk quite dramatically, so much so that in the early 2000s, the Sonoran pronghorn rescue team gathered up the pronghorn that were left on the range, and there were only about 20 of them, and they put them in a captive breeding program. And thanks to some really great work by the management team, they boosted the numbers of the captive herd up over about 200. And then they turned to geneticists, and they asked us to monitor the population and check and see if there was increased inbreeding in the population to help them determine if they needed to select different bucks so it's a breeding stock for the population. They also asked us a very intriguing question. They said, hey, we would like to someday release pronghorn back onto their native range, only we're not quite sure which subspecies lived where. They have been extirpated from the wild for so long that there aren't records really anymore of which subspecies was present in Arizona and Southern California. So they asked me to go and dig around in the museum collections to see if I could find genetic evidence of which subspecies was found where. And uh, after a lot of digging, I found 14 museum specimens that had been deposited into collections throughout California uh, over the course of the last, say, 100 years. And I extracted their DNA and compared them to DNA from modern sub, uh, subspecies populations. And I was able to determine that in Southern California, there was a different subspecies than in Arizona. And I was able to provide this information to the management team, which then would help them guide release of the Sonoran pronghorn back into the wild. And this was really rewarding for me because I got to see my research put into action. And now the population has gone from about 20 individuals to up over 500 in just a few years, which is really exciting for Sonoran Pronghorn. That's amazing. Congratulations for like being part of that. That's big. Yeah, thanks. It's not every day that you get to see your, your research having a real impact. So that's uh, quite a feather in my cap. <laughs> yeah. And it's also... Like kudos to the people managing that project who even thought about that, and they didn't just go, "eh, a pronghorn's a pronghorn; it can it can go out there; it'll be fine." Absolutely, they had a team of biologists working together, so ecologists who understood what the pronghorn ate and how they might respond to the environment. Uh, as you might be aware, Arizona gets particularly hot in the summertime. Mm. And so the Sonoran pronghorn are thought to handle the temperatures a lot better than the pronghorn that are found in the more northern regions. And that was one of their questions. They said, which of the subspecies is likely to survive in the wild, um, especially now given that temperatures are getting hotter? And so we have to combine both genetic data and ecological data uh, together in order to make the best predictions for these recovering species. It's always, it's so good to hear a positive story in this kind of space, because there's a lot of really bad news when it comes to biodiversity and the future and all that sort of thing. And to hear that there's been a, at least one species have a little bit of a recovery. That's awesome. 
Yeah. I kind of think of myself as a petulant optimist, despite all of the evidence that our biodiversity levels are plummeting. I have this really persistent optimism that there's something we can do about it. Well, and you're actively working to do something, right? hope so. (laughs) What does an average day at work look like for you? Because at the moment, I'm kind of imagining you surrounded by like all these jars. (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah i say i work with specimens i talk about working with endangered species but my day-to-day is a lot of working in a genetics lab and even more sitting in front of a computer (laughs) i am infrequently out at the collection. When I'm there, I'm taking samples of specimens and then I take them back to the laboratories here at CSIRO and conduct my DNA extractions, send them off for sequencing and get the data back. And then the majority of my time is spent analyzing data. So I might be a wildlife geneticist, but really the the vast majority of the time is staring at the A's, C's, T's and G's on my computer screen. I warn potential geneticists of this. I say, you know, you think you're going to be working in the lab with pipettes and DNA. No, you're going to be staring at a, at a screen. So I really hope you enjoy that. The, the world's changed a bit. Although, in fairness, today's like students who are studying genetics might end up doing it like all in virtual reality, surrounded by like VR versions of the DNA. That is so true. When I was doing my honors research next generation sequencing wasn't a thing. So next generation sequencing being cutting up the entire genome into lots of different types of pieces and then sequencing them many fold times over. When I was doing my honors, we were sequencing little stretches of DNA and then having to stitch them all together, which is how the human genome was ultimately put together. And over the course of a summer or two, there was this revolution in the way that we sequenced genomes. And this got me really excited because I thought that this technology would revolutionize the way that we did uh, genomics for like species of conservation concern. Um, However, all this technology was of course applied in, in human health and in model species and those of us studying non-model species had to wait a few more years in order for this technology to filter down to us. But thankfully, just in time for me to start my postdoc, now DNA sequencing costs have come way, way down, and we're able to deploy a whole range of techniques in order to uh, study these these species that we wouldn't have been able to just a few years ago. Interestingly, you're the second person who I've spoken to in very recent weeks who's using DNA sequencing and she's using it for breast cancer research. But so you're sending off these samples to be sequenced. It seems to happen quite quickly, but you're at CSIRO and you're still sending them off to somewhere else. Where's this somewhere else and why are they special? Why do they get the machines and like you don't have them? The machines themselves that are used for next generation sequencing technologies can be very expensive uh, on the orders of a million or so dollars for the most part. And they also require highly specialized technicians to run them. And a facility like CSIRO, while we do a lot of sequencing, we wouldn't do the volume of sequencing that would necessitate having our own instrument. 
And so that's why there's a number of facilities around the country that really specialize in those technologies in order to provide them in a reliable fashion. But there's this third wave of DNA sequencing that's happening that doesn't require sending sequencing off to a facility. These would be these long molecule sequencing technologies. And rather than being a gigantic piece of equipment that costs half a million dollars, they're smaller than your mobile phone. And you can pop them onto a laptop or even potentially on your phone and do do DNA sequencing right in your laboratory, which is once again revolutionizing the way that geneticists are able to get access to DNA sequence data. How long would it then take to do a sequence? I've done some genomic sequencing using long read technologies with marine sponges, so sea sponges, and just in the course of a day, you can sequence a genome. And then again, it's the it's the data analysis that takes a really long time. <laughs> I mean, like a sea sponge isn't the most, I can't imagine it's the most genetically exciting of critters, but <laughs> it, it's not nothing. Like that's pretty speedy for something that's essentially a desktop device. Yeah, the, these technologies, these nanopore and pack biotechnologies are being used on a huge range of species and giving access to DNA sequencing um, in communities that otherwise wouldn't have access to these technologies because they, they don't have sequencing facilities or they don't have the money for the sequencing, which itself can cost still, although it's cheaper, about tens of thousands of dollars. So for a few hundred dollars and a small device and an ice pack and a, you know, a PowerPoint, you can get DNA sequence data that you otherwise would never have been able to get to. Which is awesome, but it also means that we end up drowning in data and absolutely, we have no shortage of data now in so many fields and mm. making sense of that is becomes its own skill. Absolutely. <clears throat> Speaking of skills, what, what are the skills that you need to be able to do your job? Like obviously they're sitting in front of a computer skills, but there's also... Like I imagine when it comes to extracting a sample from like a hundred year old specimen, like you don't want to get that wrong either. No, it's double checking, triple checking that you have organized your samples really well so that you don't make a mistake. Because if you make a mistake, there's no going back. In a lot of cases, these specimens, there's you know N equals one and you really have to have confidence in yourself that you're, you're doing it right and that you're applying the, the approach correctly. Uh, so a good, strong sense of confidence will do you really well in my field. And I say having persistence is also really important in my field because when you're working on the edge of technology of something that you're developing for application, it doesn't always work. And having the patience and persistence to keep trying and keep trying new things uh, is really important. Otherwise, you can find yourself feeling uh, pretty down about yourself. So being a good sense of optimism is important. (laughs) And I think optimism is especially important when you're dealing with information and data that could otherwise be overwhelmingly sort of depressing. 
Yeah, that's 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 very true. <laughs> and on the persistence as well, like the price of working at the cutting edge and developing entirely new things is that not everything does work. And sometimes there's a reason something hasn't been done. And I think persistence is essential for so many careers. Yeah. And in my line of work where we're trying to show that we're able to do sequencing with specimens that no one else has been able to get DNA out of, proving to myself that the data that I got were real before I went talking about them was uh, I had to meet a really high bar for myself to be satisfied that I was willing to go and talk about these things. That you hadn't invented it somehow. Yeah, I hadn't accidentally swapped my samples. (laughs) I I swapped it with a good one. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, I think being able to believe in yourself that you got it right. Mm -hmm. How have you ended up in this job? Like, what led you, say, from high school to where you are now? It was a bit of a bumbling path, I have to admit. And... It started out in high school. I was really fascinated with science. I was good in my good at my science classes. I did well, but I had no idea what I wanted to do with that. I'd never met a scientist. I'd met plenty of uh, MDs. A lot of the kids that I went to school with, their parents were were medical doctors, and it seemed to be that we were being trained to go to medical school if we were good at science, but that just didn't seem to fit to me because I really loved the natural world. I grew up mucking around in ponds and collecting frogs and chasing chickens. So being a medical doctor didn't really jive with me. So I was a bit lost, honestly. And after high school, I decided that I needed to do a bit of traveling. I grew up in New Jersey, which to a lot of people, wouldn't be considered a haven of the natural world. But I grew up in the really lovely green parts of the Garden State. And I decided that I wanted to see other parts of the country in the United States before I made a decision about what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I hit the road and I drove to New Mexico where I put down roots And New Mexico is a really wonderful place in that it's just awesome beauty of the natural world surrounding you. And it's there that I got back in touch with my real passion for the natural world and had a really long, hard think about how I could combine my aptitude for science with my love for the natural world. And I started taking classes at the University of New Mexico and fell in love with genetics. And it was there that I started getting getting an inkling that I wanted to, to study genetics, but still didn't quite know how all the pieces fit together. And I remember the day quite vividly that it all gelled. I was sitting on my bed in my share house in Albuquerque, and I saw on the news that Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, had just died. And my heart sank. 
because I'd spent so many hours sitting up at night when I was in high school watching the crocodile hunter, just absolutely enamored with him and the passion that he showed for wildlife and for his job. And when he died, it hit me like a ton of bricks that the world had lost this absolute gem. And, you know, this is, it, it, it kind of, I questioned why it was hitting me so hard. And I realized it's because he was so passionate for what he did. And I had so much respect for him funneling his passion into his work that I wanted to kind of pay tribute <laughs> to him and the wonderful work that he had done and take what I was passionate about and fuse it with what I was really good at. And I went to my, my computer at the time and Google was a new thing. So I put into Google conservation genetics and up popped a whole bunch of PhD programs. <laughs> offering uh, graduate degrees in conservation genetics, which up until that point I had no idea existed. And from that moment on, I was laser focused on doing a career that would allow me to engage in the kind of science that I found intellectually stimulating genetics with the uh, type of questions that really fueled my fire, which was in conservation of vertebrate species. I finished up my degree at the University of New Mexico, and I went on to do a PhD in conservation genetics at the University of Arizona, where I studied Sonoran pronghorn and learned lots of bioinformatics skills and learned how to extract DNA from pretty much anything. And right before I was about to finish my PhD, my partner at the time was offered a postdoctoral position in Australia at UNSW. And we had to make the decision of whether or not we would take that. And me being a bit of an Australiophile said, absolutely, we're moving to Australia. But I hadn't yet finished my PhD. And I made the hard decision to leave my lab, having tidied up all of my, my laboratory work, packed all my data in a hard drive, and shipped off to Australia. I wrote up my dissertation uh, while living in Canberra. And after I finished and defended virtually before it was cool, uh, I then applied for postdoctoral positions here in Canberra, uh, which then led me to do a short postdoc at the Australian National University studying marine sea sponges, which didn't really jive with me because it wasn't, it just didn't fit my passion quite as well um, as I wanted it to. And then a position here at CSIRO came up doing uh, or developing new methods of extracting genetic information out of museum specimens. And I said, oh, that's exactly what I was doing for my PhD. And I feel like you know, this is much more in line with the kind of work that I wanted to do uh, to kind of get back to my roots of, of why I got into conservation genetics in the first place. And so I applied and I, I switched over to CSIRO where I've been now for the last two years. And I'm really glad that I made the switch because I feel I'm really well positioned to work at that interface between research and conservation management and have a much bigger impact uh, on questions of diminishing biodiversity in a time when we really need to be taking action. That's fantastic. 
Do you reckon high school Erin would be proud of you now? I think high school Erin would be overjoyed. (laughs) (laughs) She would be clicking her Doc Martens in the air and very excited to know that I'm out here doing conservation genetics in Australia, kind of living the dream. How did you develop the passion for Australia? It's the wildlife here. To an American, things that bounce and have pouches are just so fascinating. (laughs) That's really cool to hear because I I heard a rumor that sometimes our wildlife is considered a little bit backwards or a bit like not as developed. Which I think upside down, upside down is the is the uh, is the real term. <laughs> We're different. It's that's not yeah. the same as backwards. Yeah, no, absolutely not backwards. I have to say, when I moved here, I knew quite a lot about the diversity of Australian mammals. They're the ones that always make it across the oceans, and we hear stories about all sorts of uh, marsupials. But it was the birds here that really caught my attention. We don't. It doesn't make it across just the diversity and noisiness of the birds here in Australia. And if I were to ever leave, that would be the thing that I would miss the morning chorus. They are very chatty. Mm-hmm. In that whole journey, were there any particular, like other than the death of Steve Owen, um, which I think a lot of us would remember where we were and what we were doing at the time, but were there any other moments where you're just like, yes, this this is the right path or like that helped you overcome because obviously not everything always goes to plan. Any or maybe mentors? I'd say when I got to work with the Sonoran Pronghorn management team, which consisted of not just researchers, but the wranglers who worked with pronghorn, actually physically worked with the pronghorn, as well as the Native American tribal elders who were uh, in with the team and consulting uh, and giving their traditional knowledge. That was a moment for me where not only did I feel like I had value in my in my expertise, uh, but that I was engaging with the community in a real and meaningful way. And that felt right, like I had landed in the right place. And when you can kind of draw that connection between what you're doing and what the outcome is going to be for this species as well. Exactly. Because sometimes in science, well, actually a lot of the time in science, it's really hard to see the end goal because the whole point of a PhD is to create this new tiny little bubble of knowledge in a really niche field that you can quite often lose track of of the thread of why you got into it in the first place. So to be interacting with the community and providing advice that will be then implemented uh, and affecting populations and policy, that's a rare moment, unfortunately, and something that I really wanted more of. You never know. There might be someone listening who's like, she's the right person for this particular job. We can save something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've been finding myself more and more interested in interfacing with policy lately. I actually just finished up attending Science Meets Parliament this year, which was a really eye-opening experience. I got lots of information on how Parliament works, uh, which helped me 
study up for my Australian citizenship test, I have to say. <laughs> and it gave me sort of the behind the scenes look into how parliament works, how policymakers interface with scientists and gave us some really hot tips on how to talk to policymakers in a way that they'll understand and we can communicate our science better. Because I feel like what you're doing, it's really important that people understand the potential of that, particularly at that policy level. Yeah, especially with working with museum specimens, it's important that policymakers understand the value of having natural collections. They're often dismissed as these old dusty institutions that are, you know, just have a whole bunch of stuffed animals. But knowing that not only do they contain highly valuable information about our past, but their continued maintenance and study of best practices so that we can preserve the diminishing resources uh, and examples of species that we have now going forward is also really, really critical. So it's important to have those people on our side. Yes, because we don't want them to suddenly drop funding to the freezer department or something like that. (laughs) Exactly. That was a terrifying thought. Was there anything you learned in Science Meets Parliament that you'd like to share? The biggest takeaway was and it'll sound so obvious when I say it, that parliamentarians and policymakers are people too. <laughs> and, right? What? What? <laughs> this is news to me that they have busy schedules and we need to approach them in a way that we communicate our message clearly and succinctly. And they, we, you know, we ask them to, to follow up and we can meet them halfway and that they're just other people just like us and they're representing people just like us and when you come from a background of of conservation there's a tendency to be a little bit combative with government people in the government and we try to rein that in and so this reminder that policymakers are people too with their own perspectives and learning about their perspective so that we can approach them in a way to explain our science in a way that they'll understand and empathize with us and we can have and find common ground was just a really refreshing reminder and the conversations that i had with policymakers when i was there were really invigorating and refreshing because i felt that here in Australia, there is a really strong desire for evidence-based policy, both from the people and from a lot of policymakers as well. Which is fantastic to hear because we we can tend to put policy people, whatever the word is for a group of them, um, kind of into a facelessness and... Yeah, remembering that they've got their own lived experiences, which, like, at some point, at least one politician is going to have seen a goanna and been like, wow, that's an impressive creature, and maybe not thought anything further of it. But if you can then tap into that story and build on that, that's obviously going to create a much stronger connection and be a platform for potential change. Yeah, exactly. And I found that the biggest tool that researchers have is in asking questions. We're quite, we're quite good at asking questions. And 
all too often when scientists are advocating for their particular brand of science or explaining their science, they just launch into their spiel where with policymakers, it's often better to ask questions first and say, what are the people in your electorate care about? What are, what are their issues? And then framing your science around that so that you're speaking to what the people in their electorate care about most. And that's really what's going to resonate with them. That's a really nice tip. What advice would you give to a young person considering a career, whether it's in conservation or molecular biology, any advice you'd like to give them? I say learn bioinformatics. (laughs) It doesn't matter what you're going to wind up doing, you're going to need to deal with data. There is more and more of it piling on us every day. And the sooner you can learn how to manipulate it, especially in new and creative ways, the the much easier your path is going to be through science. And data analysis teaches you not just how to solve specific research questions, but it also teaches you a lot of problem solving. So it cannot hurt to take a few coding classes and, and learn how to mess with data. And you don't need to wait till uni to do that. There's a whole lot of free resources available. And there's a lot of free data available as well. If you want to ask questions, you can start booking it right now. Yeah, my data will be freely available soon if you want to play with it for me. (laughs) Oh, that's cool. I personally don't. But um, (laughs) well, I love the idea of being able to do it. I just run out of time. But Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's cool. We can include a link to that in the show notes in case someone wakes up at 3am one morning and is like, yes, analyzing data. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it'll be coming out when my, my new paper is published. So not quite yet, but there'll be heaps of it, terabytes of it, if you'd like. Soon enough. Which is great. And I, I feel like part of that is, yeah, learning how to do data analysis, a bit of programming never goes astray, but also learning how to ask good questions and be curious about about these big piles of data because there's a lot in there but you need to ask good questions to get something good out of it yeah i think another thing that's really important in conservation is to do your research on what it is your community or your area of concern really cares about because It's all well and good to be interested in a biological question yourself, but if the resource managers don't care or if your local community isn't willing to support some kind of method that you're using, then it's not going to fly. So learning good communication skills and developing networks is equally important to asking good questions. That's a really good point because there's some things that people aren't going to care about i feel like possibly getting people excited about uh, excited about sea sponges could take a (laughs) bit of creative communication but then there's topics like horses in the high country and you've got as many like letters to the editor as you could possibly drown in absolutely and there's plenty of species that are equally critical to the environment that aren't as cute and cuddly So learning how to weave a good story around them to bring people on your side is also really important. Especially if you're dealing with something that isn't naturally charismatic, 
and isn't going to immediately look good on a button badge or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Sea sponge. (laughs) I feel like sea sponges are really important, though. I feel like I heard something. I don't think so, but I've moved on. (laughs) Okay, you're clear. You were not the right person to talk to about sea sponges. I am not a sea sponge advocate, no. I'll get someone on the show and they're like passionate about sea sponges and they'll be like, Erin was just, ugh, just no. <laughs> they can offer their rebuttal. Is there anything that you're working on where there's myths or misconceptions that you'd really like to take this opportunity to squash? If you were to ask most geneticists that work with historical specimens, they would dismiss formal and fixed specimens as entirely too hard. <laughs> the DNA is irretrievable, but I'd like to I'd like to encourage them to take a closer look. Specifically, contact me if you have any questions, because I have some some techniques and ways of vetting specimens <laughs> that uh, could mean that these specimens are now usable in molecular research. And we're going to have a paper coming out soon to demonstrate that. We have a paper in review that will be demonstrating all of these techniques, <laughs> which is very cool. I, I think we should also possibly mention something about cloning and that you're not like using these things to clone ancient animals or develop new crazy animals. No, I have no intention of, of creating new hybrid dinosaurs or anything like that. Uh, a question that, like I said, that's a question that the primary school kids bring up all the time of bringing back certain species. And they said, can you do this? And I always answer, should you? <laughs> A lot of species, they've gone extinct for a reason, most likely because the environment that they required is no longer present. And so it becomes a whole ethical question of whether or not you really should bring species back that we're not doing particularly well. You know, perhaps we need to get our environmental house in order before we start thinking about introducing species that have gone extinct. But that, for that, I think you'd have to ask a uh, environmental ethicist rather than a conservation geneticist. <laughs> That's a whole other thing, and it's very complicated. But it's a good, probably, reminder. Let's try and avoid other species going extinct right now. Exactly. Yes, it's few, we have to ask fewer questions of whether or not it's important to bring them back if we don't let them disappear in the first place. Is there anything else we haven't touched on? that you would like to take this opportunity to bring up. Another thing that I'm passionate about and working really hard to include in my research is in mentoring young scientists. As a, as a kid, I didn't see scientists. They were not a regular part of my life. I saw them on television wearing lab coats, but that was about the extent of the interaction that I had with scientists. And so I try my best to to get out and be a model for students to see what it is that scientists actually do. And I think this is particularly important for young girls to see examples of successful scientists that they that would be role models for them. And in the next year or so, I'm part of this Superstars of STEM program. Um, led by Science and Technology Australia. And in the next few years, I'll be going around as part of that program to local high schools and talking to students there in order to give them examples of what women in STEM are capable of and the kind of groundbreaking 
science that we're doing. And I'm really hoping to get out into rural communities because here in Canberra, kids get to see scientists all the time. I mean, a lot of them have parents who are scientists, but in rural communities, they don't have that opportunities. And we have so many diverse perspectives here in Australia that it would be such a shame to lose out on including those in the STEM community. So giving more students, more diverse students, access to examples of scientists would really help to propel science in Australia going forward. And so that's something that I'm going to be working on a lot in the next couple of years. And that's pretty exciting. And if you want anything shared or if we can help amplify that at all, let us know. Absolutely. If you want to contact me on Twitter, I'm at Aaron underscore E underscore Han. Um, and if you're a teacher, let me know if you're interested in having me come to your school and give a chat. I'm happy to give a, a nice long drive through the Australian countryside to come and talk to kids. And we can probably do it a bit remotely as well now too, because we're all on top of Zoom. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Kids are so good at this Zoom, so much better than I. <laughs> and hopefully through that we can get a couple of uh, data scientists, young data scientists up and running so that they can start dealing with these mountains of data that we're living with now. Absolutely. I'd love to create a whole little fleet of data scientists who can analyze my very noisy data. <laughs> Wonderful. And congratulations on being one of the superstars of STEM. That's a, that's a pretty big win. Yeah, thanks. And with that in mind, do you have a shout out or a virtual high five for anyone or any program who is doing an awesome job and you would just like to see everyone who's listening to give high fives to? Along the vein of people getting out into the communities and exposing children to science, I think that the people of Deadly Science, Corey Tut, is doing a really great job of bringing science out into the Aboriginal communities and we need a lot more people focusing their effort to bring more opportunity out into our, our rural communities in particular and our Aboriginal, our emerging Aboriginal scientists. And Deadly Science is an amazing, amazing program. And it's, it's so ridiculous that in the 21st century, we wouldn't be giving remote and regional communities the same level of opportunities as people in Canberra do and access to amazing scientists and all this knowledge that we've got there is no reason why we can't share it with those communities and yeah Corey Tart's doing an amazing job yeah if last year has taught us anything is that there are no barriers anymore to communication and networking it just takes getting in front of your laptop and we have a lot of really creative ways of, of getting science out into the communities virtually. And now we just need to extend our tendrils further. Be a little bit brave, people. Yeah. So high fives again to Corey Tut and Deadly Science. It's amazing work. and It's really cool. Yay. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Erin. It has been very educational and I think we'll all be thinking about uh, jars of formalin, uh, formalin? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Jars of formalin a little bit differently now. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks so much for having me. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, you're an absolute gem of a human being and you should head over to avidresearch.com.au, sign up for our amazing email newsletter and get all the download on the upcoming episodes and maybe even get a bit of a sneak peek about what's coming next. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you should definitely subscribe. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and even Google these days. Thanks. Thank you.